0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email Ask Chris Shelton at gmail.com. And please do send your questions uh, into that. I am more than happy to add to my queue. I got a lot of questions there, but uh, keep them coming in. Uh, they're always fun and interesting. So this week's podcast was live. I hope you guys were able to catch that or catch up on it because what I did was first time ever, I actually brought up one of my podcast guests back to engage in some Q&A with you guys. That's why we did it live. And this was Kat, and she is the woman who had, as I say, quote-unquote, infiltrated the church of scientology in austin and she had a fascinating story to tell us a couple weeks ago on the podcast and this week she helped answer some questions that you guys had for her about that experience and that was a real that was a real good idea that was a viewer suggestion to me and i thought wow that's a great idea and i and i executed that and i thought that went great and uh, so i don't know maybe we'll do more of that in the future if you guys are of a mind to have that on my show just let me know in the comment section and what kind of content Content would you like to engage with in terms of having live stream podcasts where we can have back and forth? Um, not not on a call in basis because that is our critical conversation show, which it appears is moving to Fridays now. I'm not going to be doing that on Wednesdays. That helps with the sort of workflow of my uni study, uh, my university study, and. Um, uh, because Wednesdays and Thursdays are lecture days. And, uh, you know, this week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, my day was consumed by study. <laughs> so I was like, wow, this is definitely going to take some time out of my schedule. So I knew that. Now we're seeing how it's rolling out. And um and having a great time with it, learning a lot of stuff and um, learning about, learning the names of some things and learning uh, statistics, anyway, all kinds of fun stuff there. So. Um, if you're curious about you know my um, progress in that then do check out the recording of the critical conversation show this week we did it yesterday or Friday and um, that was all we, we talked about coercive control and I and I dropped some some uh, data that I've been learning on these courses about coercive control and and uh, we had some fun with that too all right so that's sort of the uh, beginning of the show plugs um, And let's go ahead and get on with your questions now. Tracy Stewart. I was shocked at the passing of Kelly Preston, and I really don't mean to be disrespectful, but does John Travolta suffer grief like, quote-unquote, normal people? Or does he genuinely think, as apparently he did with his son, that Kelly has passed on to other Phaetons, etc.? How do Scientologists cope with bereavement in their human form? Also, what's your favorite Rush album? Mine is Permanent Waves, Free Will, but I love them all, really. Hey, Tracy, thanks for the dual questions there. I will get to both of them. Um, first off, I get it that you're not trying to be disrespectful, and um, so let's go ahead and address this, right? I mean, I think I've talked about grief in the past in Scientology and the death of loved ones and how Scientologists think about it, and basically it is not that they are passing on to other Thetans, it's that you, me, John, Kelly, everybody are a Thetan. That is who you really are. You are not your body and never were. No part of your physical existence, as far as Scientologists are concerned, I'm talking from a Scientology point of view here, all Scientologists believe that you were never your body. That your body is has as much significance to who you really are as a can of Coke. It's just not a thing. You've had billions of bodies. Billions. An unthinkable number of them, of lifetimes that you have led in the past. Both human form, earlier forms, animal forms, anything you can imagine, pretty much. I mean, over the course of billions or trillions of years, a lot goes down. And (laughs) this is you. So, it's almost thought of, okay, so there's the intellectual side of this, and then there's the emotional side, okay? And most of the time when we discuss Scientology, we are talking about it from the intellectual, emotion, you know, uh, rational, this is the rules, these are the guidelines, this is what the dogma says, yes, it's abusive, this is what goes on, but mostly it's about the rules and the ideas and the belief set. So we can sort of remove that, looking at that, from the humanity, actual humanity of the situation. So when I'm going to talk about thetans and bodies and stuff like that, I'm talking about it from that perspective, not from the human perspective of people experiencing the loss of loved ones, okay? So, What I'm trying to do is paint the picture of what the belief set is because the belief set informs the reaction to the loss and the actions that you should take as a result of a loss. So in this case, because Scientologists believe this so heavily, especially by the time they've gotten to the level where John is at, where they're on the OT levels, I mean, by that point, you are all in on being a Thetan, not a human being or a body or Homo sapiens or whatever you want to call it. That's that You have totally bought into this line of thinking. And again, in terms of whether this might seem strange or not, I'm describing all of this in Scientology terms, but if, if I flip the script on you here, this is really not that different of a concept from a Christian soul or a karmic spirit or something. I mean, if you believe in life everlasting, that you have lived before and you will live again, then if there's any part of that that you believe in, then you're aligned with Scientology in that regard. And most people on this planet who have religious belief of some kind have this supernatural idea that we're going to keep living after we're dead. Now, whether we've lived before or not, is a, is, it changes up depending on you know what religion you're talking about. Scientology has this past lives thing. Christians, I guess, have the idea, I suppose, that your soul is newly created when your body is created, or something. I don't really know how that. I'm never really engaged with a Christian on that point. I'm kind of curious about it, actually. Now that I'm sitting here thinking about it, when is a soul created? And how does it inhabit a human body? And wh- is it a physical thing, or is it a Holy Spirit spiritual manifestation like a thetan that doesn't have real existence in the physical universe? You know, I don't know. These are good questions, I think, to to find out from the Christian perspective. And I'll probably find about a thousand different answers to this question. In Scientology, there's only one right answer. (laughs) So anyway, um, just trying to play a little compare and contrast there. This isn't a hit at them or anybody at all. I'm just talking about the topic. So, okay. So, So that's the belief set. So how do Scientologists deal with grief? Well, they tend to bury it, okay, is what ends up happening. Because the fact of the matter is that whether you have this belief set or not, it informs how you respond, you are still experiencing a loss. And that loss of a loved one, no matter how you intellectually define or describe it, is still going to hit you at a biological, emotional level, a physical level, if you will. And, um, and that's where, what we experience as grief and loss, is this idea that this individual will no longer be part of our life. And they are gone. They are no longer contributing. And uh, they're no longer present. And it really sucks. It's this, it's this loss thing, right? So, Scientologists do feel those emotions. They they, Absolutely, they feel them. How could they not? Um, Unless, of course, there is something, you know, wrong with them in terms of neural or biological factors. But, uh, you know, we're talking about normal people, normal Scientologists and normal people, quote-unquote, here. So, in that, Context, Scientologists feel grief like everybody else. They cry, they hit the walls, they scream, they cry, they get upset. But they are smoothed over or, you know, succor is provided or they are comforted by the fact that their loved ones are not dead at all in any way, and in fact haven't really changed their existence in any way except for the fact that they've sloughed off this body, which is basically the same thing as a change of clothes for you or me, right? You change your beingness, you change who you are. The uh, Scientology term, beingness. It's 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 your identity. It's who you are. So um so that's what changes when you're when you quote unquote drop your body. That's how they talk about it in Scientology, is you drop your body. I dropped it. (laughs) I don't got it no more. And you move on. So to that degree, if you really were all in on that belief, and I have been, and I've experienced loss as a Sea Org member and Scientologist because other Sea Org members or Scientologists died. And my response to it was not just to shrug it off. I definitely felt the loss of it. Oh, man, that's damn, that sucks, I'm not going to be able to talk to them anymore, they're not around anymore, I feel sorry for his his wife, his child, you know, in the case of this man who had died of a heart attack, um, you know, another person, I think, had had an accident, the tragedy of it, the timeliness of it, the, you know, the untimeliness of it, rather, was uh, devastating to us, because this was a, uh, this this one I'm thinking of right now was a young woman in her early 20s, I mean, she just shouldn't have died at all, and, um and yet that happened, right? So so how did I process that as a Scientologist? I I, I was like, damn, that sucks. Oh. You know, and really upset about the loss of it. But then, well, okay, well, I hope they're okay. Going to go get another body. I hope they remember enough of Scientology to come back. You know, you kind of have that in the back of your head. Because you know that between lives, people are compelled to, spiritual, you know, thetans are compelled to forget their past lives. Uh, this has been a cycle, this has been going on forever, so why would this be any different? Well, hopefully their exposure to Scientology would make it different. And Hubbard actually addressed this in the materials of Scientology. He said, you know, one of the biggest fears Scientologists have is kicking off and not remembering anything. And so this is one of the what the way Hubbard told Scientologists to deal with this is to read his books, listen to his lectures, get trained as an auditor. And that way you'll remember it and you'll be able to overcome the mental traps and, and uh, implants of the between lives area. So... You know, so this is touched on quite a bit in Scientology. This is an acknowledged thing. So, anyway, I thought I'd give that information to you about this, and um, I think that, that answers the question. Hope that's uh, of use to you there. And then, as far as my favorite Rush album, um, you said yours is Permanent Waves. Uh, mine's a toss-up between uh, Moving Pictures and Power Windows. Moving Pictures, of course, being the album that features Tom Sawyer. But my favorite song on that album is. Actually, witch hunt about censorship. I love that song, Uh, and then there is all the songs on Power Windows are one hundred percent up my alley as far as Rush goes. That's that to me is the best Rush ever, and that's mid nineteen eighties Rush. I know other people have um, very strong opinions about their favorite Rush, and I'm not even uh, arguing about it. I'm just saying that's where I'm at. So thanks a lot, Tracy, for the question. Frank Gray. My question is related to the famous Tom Cruise Black Turtleneck video, where he exposes his true delusions to the true believers. At one point, Cruise talks about ethics and says that he, quote, relentlessly puts ethics in on himself, end quote, and he exhorts the others to do the same. What does he mean by putting ethics in on himself? Is this done during the standard auditing process where overts and withholds are disclosed? I thought that was just standard Scientology practice. Or is there some formal process similar to the knowledge report where one writes up oneself for ethics violations? How does that work and what are the ramifications? Great question, Frank. Thanks for asking this, because this is one of those things where a Scientologist, as former Scientologist, it's obvious what he means. But your question is wonderful, because it shows all the ways that you would interpret that without knowing what it really is all about, because um, your guesses are not not what it, this is about. And, um, and it's funny, keeping your ethics in or putting your ethics in. So first, let me explain that in Scientology, the words in and out are used all over the place, okay? So, if something is in, that means it's properly being done or applied, or it is in a condition of being successfully applied or successfully done or operating, okay? So, if... Um, Uh, well then there's, and that's contrasted with out. If something is out, then that means it is not present. It is not being done. It is not being properly applied. It is being misapplied in some fashion. Any one of these things could lead to something being out. So something can be in or something can be out. So for example, a policy, a specific set of rules, about a particular part of the organization, as laid out in a policy letter from Hubbard, that policy can be in or out in the organization, meaning you're either doing it right, and it's in, or you're not doing it, you're ignoring it, or you're doing a slipshod job, or you're half-baking it, or whatever, and so it's out. It's out to some degree. It can be a scale. It's not necessarily an extreme you know black or white thing. You know most of the time that's kind of how it's thought of cuz it's either 100% or it's nothing. But um but you get you know you get scales with this. So for ethics ethics are in or ethics are out. So in Scientology Hubbard defines ethics as the 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 actions that the organization, um, well, that's kind of justicey, really. Ethics are a personal thing, Hubbard says. Ethics are what you do to keep yourself on the straight and narrow. To keep yourself operating or functioning or running your life according to the principles, morals, ideas, guidelines, rules uh, that you should be following, okay? So if you know that you should get up every morning and brush your teeth, then that's part of your ethics is knowing, you know, when your ethics are in, then you are brushing your teeth every morning. That's an ethical thing to do. It's the right thing to do for caring of your, your body and Um, you know, that sort of thing. So that would be a point of keeping your ethics in, would be brushing your teeth, you know, caring for your body, not drinking to excess. I'm drawing here from Scientology's moral code, the, The Way to Happiness, where Hubbard talks about being temperate and, you know, taking care of your body and not telling harmful lies and not murdering people. These are things that Scientologists think of as ethical actions or things you should do. And in the big wide society at large, they have a lot of agreement on those points. Those are points where Scientology can mesh with society well. So, but the terminology in Scientology has to do with ethics. Okay, so your ethics are something that are constantly being monitored and self monitored in Scientology. Once you're aware of these concepts or you learn these principles, then, um, and it's pretty early on that you learn this stuff and the terminology of, are, you know, surrounding it, once this is in, or once you understand this, then it's expected that you're just going to keep your ethics in. Now, part of keeping your ethics in is also following all the rules and regulations of Scientology as laid down by Hubbard and Miscavige and the Sea Org and the local staff. Right, These are the authority figures in Scientology, sort of in sequence there, right, from top to bottom. And so other Scientologists, of course, as well, because Scientology is a snitching culture. So Scientologists work to get ethics in on their other fellow Scientologists, okay? I hope the terminology is, is becoming clear now, that Scientologists are having to watch other Scientologists to make sure that their ethics are in. And if you can, are confronted by a Scientologist who's who's doing something wrong, doing something bad, again, according to the church, then their ethics are out. You're like, hey, that's out ethics, right? That's another way of describing it is that action that they're taking part in right now is out-ethics. Okay, That's an out-ethics thing to do. If you caught somebody stealing, you say, hey man, that's out-ethics. What are you doing? That's how you'd say it in Scientology. So um, you would not, conversely, it's really only used accusatively. You you would not say if somebody was doing something really good. You wouldn't say, "Wow, that's so in ethics." I mean, you you might if it was really out there, but. Um, uh, but generally speaking, you don't, you don't compliment people by saying, wow, that's so in ethics. <laughs> you just say, wow, that's cool, man. Uh, but the out ethics part is used all the time, uh, of course, cause it's the negative, uh, side of that coin. So you get, um, out ethics behavior, you get people who are out ethics, you get, uh, you have to put their ethics in, Okay, and now we get to Tom Cruise and his little speech. So that's all the backstory or back sec- back explanation behind that phrase. So then, Tom Cruise is asked about suppressives, and he's asked about PTS people in his environment. Now, a PTS person, remember, in Scientology, is somebody who is actively connected to a suppressive, and you can't necessarily help if a suppressive comes into your vicinity, but. Cruz is saying, but if that kind of thing happens, he gets ethics in around him ruthlessly. He will not hesitate to, in other words, Fire somebody, disconnect somebody from his family, like his niece, his own niece, who he kicked out of his family for two years, while she went and had to, you know, prostrate herself and and beg to come back into the family. This is the kind of thing that Tom Cruise considers getting ethics in ruthlessly. Right? So his niece violates his house rules, kisses some boy, she's out of the family. It's that immediate, that drastic, that extreme. Right. That's the extremist mindset that we're always going on about. So he that's his interpretation of getting ethics in ruthlessly around him. And then he justifies it to everyone in this video, the the turtleneck video, by saying, but I, you know, I get ethics in around me, but I also get ethics in on myself ruthlessly. Right. Is what he says relentlessly puts ethics in on himself. So what he's saying there is he is a mad dog of self-discipline who watches himself constantly to ensure he's walking the straight line, staying on the, you know, the straight and narrow so that he is following Hubbard and Miscavige's and Scientology's guidelines and rules. And that's really really at the bottom line, he's saying he's professing loyalty and saying that he polices himself, so you know, relentlessly puts putting ethics in on yourself would include things like not looking at bad stuff on the internet, not paying any attention to suppressive efforts to derail Scientology, you know, focusing you know exclusively and only on forwarding the aims of Scientology. This kind of thing. That's what it means. Uh, that's what that's what's in Cruz's head when he's talking about that. So anyway, hope that clarified that. Many 4S. I know there are a number of quote unquote disappeared Scientology executives who probably are locked away at Gold Base. Do you think they are legitimately imprisoned in the sense they cannot walk out due to 24 7 security and locked quarters? Or do you think it's truly the prison of belief and that they could leave if they so chose and really pushed it? I would think Scientology does worry about what could come down on them from the FBI if they're truly physically imprisoning folks. But then I read about stories like those from Valerie Haney and Veleska Paris, and I wonder. Well, the f- truth of the matter is that both things are true at the same time. It is both a, there are physical impediments and barriers to leaving the gold base. If we're going to talk specifically about this place, then, okay, let's talk about it. So you've got barbed wire fences and, you know, the, uh, all around. You've got video monitors of every single space on that base in terms of the outdoor, external, exterior sections. Almost the entire base is covered. Um, And you've got a security force uh, who take their job seriously and who are Sea Org members. Remember, all Sea Org members are in a fairly fanatical headspace when it comes to their Scientology beliefs. So uh, are the security guards going to physically you know, impose themselves on you if you try to leave? Are they going to get in your way? Are they going to try to stop you? Are they going to like hold you back? Yeah, of course they are. Absolutely. That's absolutely going to happen. Would it be impossible to escape from this situation? No, absolutely not. People have done it. They've snuck out. They have escaped. They've gotten on their motorcycle and drove away. I mean, there was the Mark Headley incident uh, to all the way to the Valerie Haney incident where she jumped in the back of a car. So are there escape plans possible? Is it absolute security? No, It's you can definitely escape from there. And it's that side of the equation where the prison of belief comes into play because both of these things act on a person in order to keep them there. So um, so the security force knows that there are limits to what they can do. However, they also know that they can plausibly explain why they would need to secure somebody or, you know, put them down or something if the person was being, uh, physically aggressive in trying to escape or trying to leave. If they assaulted a security officer, then that security officer knows that they are justified in you know, using force to, to return back on this person. And they can paint any incident any way they want that happens on the base. They don't, you know, they don't have to, they're not held to the same objective standard of truth, say, that a police officer would be held to because they're private security for a cult. (laughs) Okay, so, um, and people there know that. I mean, that once they realize, oh, I'm in a place where I really don't want to be, shit, how am I going to get out of here? Ooh, this security force is real. These guys are not here protecting me. These guys are here... Keeping me here, right? The, the the script flips. So, but until you get to that headspace, these security guys are there for your protection. These are your friends. These are guys you work with. These are not, not maybe not your friends. Some security guards are, but you know what I mean. This is they're 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 part of the base as much as anybody else. So you're all on the same team. You're on the same side, right? Until you start wondering, mm, I don't think I like this very much, and then suddenly they're your worst enemy. So that's kind of how that goes. Um, and I think it really needs to be thought of in those terms. I don't think it's an either-or thing, which is why I'm, I'm answering this way, and I hope the answer makes sense. Um, you know, the, there have been – the other thing about this uh, is that both at Gold Base and other bases, there have been different ways that people who have wanted to leave have been dealt with sometimes they are dealt with in a very expedited manner. they want to go because they're a suicide threat, they are off that base within 24 to 48 hours. If they are legit thinking about killing themselves, then Scientology doesn't want to have anything to do with that person because the last thing they want are dead bodies on their base. So, again, there are ways that you can get out of there real fast uh, if you want to. You know, and you are canny enough or smart enough or savvy enough to figure out how to do it. Um, You know, sure, they'll throw you on an e-meter and ask you questions about whether you really intend on, you know, suiciding or not. But you can just lie. I mean, you know, if if you're desperate enough to get the hell out of there, you don't, the meter is, it's not going to stop you. So, you know, so there are ways of, of, like I said, of getting out of there without having to necessarily even jump the fence. But, like I said, it requires, so it's really, so that really is a matter of the headspace the person is in, you see. So that's why both factors are always at play. You know, sometimes there are physical barriers, sometimes there are not. But that prison of belief is always present until it's not. And then when it's not, you know, these things can work themselves out somehow or they get solved. And there you go. J.C., Do you think there's any chance the cult drops Danny Masterson, depending on how ugly things get? I can see them throwing him and anyone else who helped cover up things under the bus as rogue members who didn't follow church policy. When you were in, were you aware of this happening with members that they declared or scapegoated, or was that hidden from those inside? If you were aware, did you or others ever harbor any doubts as to their true intentions versus their stated reasons? Okay, so when I was a staff member and Sea Org member, I was loyal and I believed, therefore, that Scientology was acting in the best interests of everybody in the group. Uh, That's what they claimed to do, and I believed it. So when things happened to individuals in the group, it was easily explained and rationalized that. They made those things happen. It was their overts, right, their bad deeds that they were pulling in this bad stuff that was happening to them, and that would include somebody like Danny Masterson. If things go south, okay, you can see here's the script. The script goes, our church ally or our church member is being attacked, The Sykes, the SPs, the bad guys, the critics, they're all railing against, you know, our our man, Danny, and we have to support him. And it's all just a bunch of vicious lies and how dare they. And then let's say, oops, the truth outs and Danny Masterson is now being, you know, indicted and uh, going to court, right? And he's fighting this tooth and claw and Tony Ortega is doing a great job of giving the blow by blow on the on how the case progresses. It's really just getting going. It's going to be a little bit. So um, so depending on how thing how ugly things get if it goes all the way and it looks like he's going to be found guilty the church has a couple different choices there, right? Depending on how much exposure the church of Scientology itself has in this whole mess. The fact that Danny Masterson is, was a Scientologist is public record. They can't do anything about that. Reed Slacken was a Scientologist. He went to jail, right? There have been Scientologists who have landed in jail. In fact, there was a chiropractor who was going to go to jail. He died a couple weeks ago, and there have been other doctors and dentists and chiropractors going to jail for their fraudulent nonsense who were Scientologists. So if we look at those cases, we see that the church is really more about not involving themselves publicly in this in this in any way, right? Like, well, yeah, he did those things, but it wasn't because of Scientology, and you know, in in the normal day-to-day of of the world, that sort of excuse would work in the same way that you would never think that, um, you know, just because some doctor is uh, is defrauding Medicaid that he's doing it because he's a Christian or he's doing it because he's a Jew. I mean, that would just be unthinkable. Nobody should be thinking along those lines. But with Scientology, unfortunately, we have to actually remove that from this equation because Scientology is a destructive cult. And it's all about money, and it is voracious in its money-sucking attempts, etc. So we can't just easily write off Scientology as a non-issue with people who, in, who engage in criminal activity who are Scientologists. However, it doesn't always mean that, it's ha- that it has to be connected to Scientology or it's always Scientology's fault or something either. It's a real case-by-case kind of look. In the case of Danny Masterson, I don't think he committed these assaults because he's a Scientologist. However, they were covered up so effectively because he was a Scientologist. Scientology definitely helped with that. And should that exposure come out, you bet they're going to throw any number of people under the bus that they have to in order to show that it wasn't the church and it wasn't the church policies. I mean, exactly like you asked in your question. Yes, I'm sure that that would happen because that's a fairly common sense thing that they would do. You know, it's not not some crazy out of the out of the way. Uh, prediction that they're going to start throwing people under the bus if they're exposed, right? So it really has to do with how the church perceives its own liability in this matter as to how they're going to act about it, okay? And um, also, by the way, since I'll just drop this here since I haven't had a place to put it in any other place, um, the other thing about Danny Masterson is it's very possible that Masterson has actually been out of the church for a while. And by out of the church, I mean not a practicing Scientologist, yet still a Scientologist in name only. The church backs him, he backs them, and there's sort of this mutual sort of cooperation between them because they are involved in a cover-up of criminal actions. And so um, so it could be that Masterson could dish on certain church members or church operations or activities, and they don't want that, so they're going to play nice with him as long as he plays nice with them and doesn't throw the church under the bus in the process of his um, indictment and, and trial. Okay, so... You know, so that's how I understand the, the relationship to be working right now between Masterson and the church. I could be wrong. This is this is not, um, you know, I don't have evidence I can point to of this. This is rumor line stuff. But I thought I'd share it with you guys because it certainly does make it a little more interesting. Like, oh, really? Like, Masterson hasn't moved on the bridge in years and years and years, same as Miscavige, right? And you start wondering, are they really a Scientologist? If they've got all this money and all this time and ability to do Scientology and they're not doing it, Kind of tells you they're probably not a Scientologist, and the truth of the matter is that Masterson was in a lot of ethics trouble all the time with the church, uh, and you you know his ethics were out, as they say in my earlier answer, right? Masterson was constantly out ethics. He was out partying and drinking and drugging and all this other stuff that the church just goes ah about. You know, their heads explode over that kind of behavior, even though in Hollywood it's just par for the course. Everybody does that there. So um, so Masterson was always getting in trouble with the church over this. Well, then he goes, you know, allegedly goes uh, completely off the rails, and then the church has to now deal with the fallout of all of that. And so here we are. Okay, so... Um, so anyway, did I see, you know, was I aware of this happening with members getting declared or scapegoated when I was in? No, I thought that people who were getting busted deserved to get busted, because that's what we were told as the official party line from management or from international headquarters, and we believed it, because that's those are the people we were supposed to believe. Um, yeah. And I don't know, uh, I'm sure there were Scientologists over the years, and I might well be forgetting, you know, in 25 years, there's a lot of stuff I have now forgotten about my Scientology experience, I'm just going to tell you. Um, You know, it's just like life. I mean, how do you, you know, how much do you actually remember? Um, So I can't be sure that I never ran into a situation where we thought somebody was getting scapegoated or we saw, you know, that they were going to be the head on a pike, so to speak. But I have spoken in other places about how it's actually Scientology policy that when an area is screwing up, the standard correct thing to do is scapegoat somebody. Get a head on a pike. Get the worst offender. Get somebody. Stick their head up on a pike, on a stick, right? So everybody sees it and everybody knows oh, shit, we got to be good now. we got to get to work. we got to get operational. We have to get effective, right? otherwise we're going to have our heads put up on that pike too. So, you know, so conversely, it's baked into the policy to do that, you know? So that's the, again, that's the contrary fun nature of talking about Scientology is I can say yes and I can say no, and both things can be true at the same time. There you go. Cyprian Ivanov. What did orgs look like before the current decorating scheme? <laughs> they looked awful. They were folding chairs, folding tables, rickety carpets, rugs, um, file, dented file cabinets that you got from used office sales. They were—I mean, they were—they they looked like you know, I don't know, a 1970s classroom or something. Like I, I, you know, I'm not sure what comparison to make, except they were kind of their own thing. But it was. It was um, old, scruffy—I mean, I came into Scientology in the mid-'80s, and they had purchased this hotel on State Street in Santa Barbara, which is the main street, and it was definitely, you know— a little pricey to buy that property, they definitely should have moved somewhere else because we couldn't afford the rent payment. And that place had old carpet that was like, you know, 40 years old and was an old unrenovated hotel and it kind of looked like it. Um, you know, interesting architecture to the place. It was a unique building, but it was not in great shape. And it actually, you know, years in, uh, Tony Hitchman, the guy who interviewed Hubbard on film back in the 60s, he was in Santa Barbara, and I met him many times, and he personally paid for a full renovation of the church, Um, and he wanted to make it really nice and inviting, and he made it look more like a dentist's office (laughs) as far as paintings on the wall and pastel colors, and he paid for it all himself, and we were very thankful, but we thought, holy cow, Tony Hitchman kind of took all the Scientology out of Scientology here, and we had to kind of revamp his image of what our church should look like. That was interesting. Anyway, um, yeah, so they were pretty rickety, bad places. And this was one of the things that would actually annoy Scientologists, especially public Scientologists, are paying all this money, and they're getting, you know, serviced in these really rickety places that looked like crap. And Miscavige was like, yeah, this is, you know, it pushed a lot of people's buttons. And Miscavige pushed those buttons right back by saying, you know, we've been doing this for all these years and it's a little ridiculous, right? We have this great technology that delivers, you know, miracles every day. And look, you know, we, our, our physical properties and physical manifestation do not reflect the miracles that we can actually produce. So that was one of the selling points of the ideal org program, was that everybody knew and nobody really openly criticized or talked too much about it. But everybody knew churches of Scientology looked like complete shit, and that was that was a very factual statement. These uh, one thing about these ideal orgs is they are nice buildings uh what they're doing in the buildings is complete trash but uh but at least they got nice quarters to do it in now so there you go (laughs) all right let's do some flash answers jane smith i assume scientologists tend to be more progressive but how does the group respond to more conservative points of view Actually, no, it's the other way around. Scientology is very conservative in its leanings, um, politically, socially, and there are progressive values, and many Scientologists who have some social progressive values, but they skew conservative, definitely, and that's a direct reflection of Hubbard's politics and, and many, many statements from his lectures and books and, and writings on politics and, and social values. Marcus, we know OT levels are made up. So why doesn't Miscavige come up with some other made-up thing for OT 9 and 10 and just say they found the documents or they have been keeping it a secret? Oh, he will. Um, Give him time. That will happen eventually. But Miscavige has painted a picture right now for Scientologists where they cannot release OT 9 and 10 until all of the orgs are ideal and St. Hill signs. First they have to go ideal then they have to expand their public and staff numbers up to about 200 staff um, and, you know, tons of public, and they have to be viable. They have to be able to actually sustain themselves as an individual org entity or unit. And then when all the orgs have achieved that level, then they get OT9 and 10. So Miscavige has years and years of play with that. With that nonsense. And he just strings Scientologists along with that. And they drop releases and new courses and new books or revamp stuff to keep people's appetite, you know, sated and, and wet for more. But, um, but really, it's, you know, it's still years away. Unless, you know, Miscavige changes his mind and decides to drop it now. But I really don't see any reason why he would do that. MFSZ. I know that LRH penned documents on how to do nearly everything. Washing windows is the one folks usually mention. Did he ever author any on hygiene? If so, I'm guessing none related to teeth. No, Hubbard wrote Way to Happiness that specifically mentions taking care of your teeth. And Hubbard was big on hygiene. And he said a ship is a small world and people need to keep themselves bathed and not stink and not have bad breath and, you know, that kind of thing. He talked about it all the time the fact that Hubbard had such awful teeth is actually a fact fairly successfully well hidden from most Scientologists. I didn't have a clue Hubbard had bad teeth until I got out of Scientology. So yeah, it's, you know, I don't know. After a while, you run out of uh, explanations for this stuff. But yeah, that's that's a fact. All right, guys, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and watching me babble on here and answer your questions. I very much appreciate it, and thanks for inviting me into your home. I hope that you will support this channel through Patreon or through PayPal, that both of those methods of support are very, very much appreciated, and in these days of trying times, uh, kind of needed. So throwing that out there. Uh, Anyway, see you guys. Let's see. I believe we'll see you next Friday for our Critical Conversation show. Bye-bye.